We need you, Lord, to be with us this morning, to understand this longer and dense passage. We know that you reward those who dig deeply in your word. We know that you reward those with great diamonds of beauty, of ways we can see the gospel and hear these same truths at a different angle that we've never, we never have before, that can really bring our Christianity and our lives to life. And so I pray that you would do that miracle. I pray that as I speak that you would anoint my words, and I pray that they would hit our hearts in a fresh way, and I pray, Father, that you would cause there to be lasting change. If there's any listening to this message who are not believers, that you would save. You'd be so gracious to save and apply the blood of your Son to guilty consciences and souls to redeem them and save them by your grace. And for those who are saved listening to this, I pray that we would have a fresh appreciation and knowledge of the blood of Christ and see how it's not just something that was applicable in the old covenant system, but it's something that we need on a daily basis to know who we are and to know what it is to live in this world as a cleaned sinner. So be with me this morning and be with our church. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Pastor Keith said, we're walking through Hebrews, and the author started out proving how Jesus is indeed the perfect high priest. We're so thankful that he is both eternal and he is a man who can relate to us. In the past few passages, he's not only established that he's the high priest, but then as the high priest, he enacts a new and better covenant. And so as this new covenant comes and is ushered in, he's trying to grab that Hebrew church by their ears and say, don't go back to that old covenant system. I know it's easier, it's more comfortable, but it is something that will lead to death because it was never meant to bring you spiritual life now. And so in, in the beauty of his rhetoric and as a skilled lawyer, he comes and he brings one argument after the other, dismantling and pulling out the bricks of the old covenant system so that they cannot stand upon it, but have nowhere to stand but upon Christ alone in his high priestly office. And so I pray that this morning that you see Christ with new eyes, thanking him for being a high priest today, even for you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would show us that although, like we looked at two sermons ago, although that we're not tempted to go back to animal sacrifices, we would see the ways in which we fail to rely upon the high priest. And by God's grace, he'll apply this passage to our heart and he'll give us a, a, a conviction, a rooted uh, truth to stand on, to know that Christ is sufficient for our lives, sufficient for purity inside and out. You might be asking when you read through this passage and heard the theme, why do Christians sing and talk about blood so much? Why all the blood? Well, this is a pervasive question that almost every religion and every culture has addressed and asked. The question, how can I be clean? How can I be pure? You don't have to study history for long to know that that is one of the primary questions of humanity. If you want to ask why all the blood, well, it's not hard to look around and see alternatives or variations to blood in our culture. Sadly, in the Black Lives Matter movement, instead of blood sacrifice, they're asking for reparations, a version of bloodletting. Come and confess the sins of your ancestors so that you can be clean and you can be right in our eyes. A version of blood. Relationally, apart from Christ, this isn't hard to see at all. Oftentimes, when arguments happen in marriages or parents to children, a commercial transaction takes place, doesn't it? There might be no blood involved, but there certainly is guilt and manipulation. 
If a husband is mad at his wife, he might come home and instead of asking blood from her, he might turn the cold shoulder to her, turn on the sports, and that is his commercial transaction to put her back into, to put his guilt upon her. Or the wife wanting to uh, retaliate to the husband without any blood, without any true forgiveness, might go on a shopping spree and rack up the credit card in order to have that commercial transaction put back on his head. No blood, but the equivalent in physical and emotional and commercial ways. Or with kids, the toddler who wants the candy at the checkout line may have no blood to offer in order to get the parent to get them what they want, but they throw the tantrum to try to afflict pain upon the parents in their heart so that he, can, he or she can get their way. Western civilization that we are in is 2,000 years removed from Christ. And it is built largely upon the work of Christ and, and the fruit of, of Christianity. And so because there's been 2,000 years that have passed since that sacrifice, we've slowly forgotten the need of blood. Add to that the advancements in technology where you can go to In-N-Out, grab a bur- burger, and never think about the blood spilt of that cow. And we wind up in a place where as a church, we don't even think about blood much anymore, except in our songs and our talk. Even when we do sing about it, if you brought a visitor who's never attended a church before, you might be like, "Uh uh-oh, this is kind of awkward. What's all this blood we're singing about? Does this person even get the reference, even know what we're saying? But when we get under the surface and see what blood represents and see how pervasive of a human need it is to be clean, we appreciate all the more the blood of Christ, which is a once and for all sacrifice. We need forgiveness and we need justice in our world today and we need clean hearts just as the Hebrew congregation did back then, and just as every culture that has walked this earth. In order to truly receive that, what I want us to see today is that because Christ is our perfect high priest, his blood makes us perfectly clean. Because Christ is the perfect high priest, his blood makes us perfectly clean, solving the great human problem. We'll see this in three points this morning. First, the purifying blood of Christ. Second, the redeeming blood of Christ. And lastly, the heavenly blood of Christ. Look with me at verses 12 through 14 for our first point. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we see that we need the perfect blood of Christ to purify our conscience, So first and foremost, his blood is a purifying blood. So in verse 12, he uses this less, in 13, he uses the lesser to greater argument that he's been using and employing time and time again throughout Hebrews to show that Christ is greater than the old covenant system. It may have been shocking to their original ears that the high priest himself, the one who was known to bring an animal and sacrifice it, he became the sacrifice himself. So in verse 12 here, we're told that it is the high priest who allows us to go into the innermost holy of holies, to enter into the presence of God, because he became not only high priest, but he was the sacrifice. 
And this is a perfect transition from last week when we looked at the temple and the, the place of God that we want to be, the final home that our soul wants to rest in. We cannot have that if not for Christ opening the door for us. And he did that by being the perfect sacrifice. In verse 13, he says, contrast this to the system of purity you have right now in place. You have in the old covenant system. Think about in in Numbers 19, how if a person in their system even came near a dead body, they could not enter into the presence of God. They could not enter into the temple unless a red heifer who was perfectly pure was slaughtered burnt, his ashes were mixed with water, and that water was sprinkled on the person and then sprinkled on all the worship elements so they could come back in and worship God properly. That was the ceremonial system that was in place, and that is what that congregation was tempted to go back into. We look at Numbers 19.20, which says, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. We know that defilement was a big theme in the old covenant system. That if you were defiled by you entering into the temple, you would defile it all. I think with all of the coronavirus stuff going around, we are hyper aware of things being defiled and not wanting to touch germs. How much more so were they ceremonially scared and paranoid to bring a defiled person into the presence of God, ruining it for everyone? A system that hung on such a a tight thread was not one that could hold up for the people of God throughout history, nor solve their deepest problem. He tells us here in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? So he says, unlike that old system, which required a pure heifer and only dealt with the ceremonial outside cleaning, How much more do we need the internal cleaning of the blood of Christ? The ceremonial system was good, but it was like training wheels. It was never meant to purify the inside. It was only meant to keep them within the moral bounds of what God's law said and remind them that they needed a spiritual balance of riding the bike on their own. The ceremonial system had its place, but it was like training wheels that were not meant to stay on forever. Israel grew up, Christ came, and now the new covenant is here. We don't need to keep running with those training wheels, but we now have the spiritual balance that Christ provides. And so we see that Christ's blood is powerful to clean the inside. Why? Because he came through the eternal spirit and offered himself without blemish to God. Because Christ came not by way of outside purity with rituals of the ashes of a burnt heifer, but he came and offered himself to God through the eternal spirit, he is able to cleanse our deepest problem, which is in our inner spirit too. So because Christ offered himself by the eternal spirit, he can cleanse our spirits and their spirits too. And that's what we need. Why did he do this? He did this so that we might not have a defiled conscience anymore. Is there anything worse? Ask yourself, is there anything worse than having a defiled conscience? I would argue that if you have a conscience that's nagging you and you know you're guilty and you know you're not right with God, that is infinitely worse than any physical pain you could ever be going through. You could have a a broken leg 
You could have been stabbed, and that physical pain would sure hurt, but I would argue and submit that part of being human is that God has wired us all with a conscience, literally with knowledge. We have knowledge of God's law, and we know that we are guilty of it. Have you ever sinned and been stubborn and not wanted to confess and repent and tried to walk around and live your life and go about life as normal, even come to church maybe with a defiled conscience? That is the worst. And God doesn't want us to have a defiled conscience, conscience, not just because he wants us to be comfortable, but because he wants that smoke detector of a conscience to wake us up and remind us of our need of a savior, of our need not just for ceremonial external cleansing, but we need to be cleansed through and through to the innermost part of our spirit. That is why Christ came and offered better blood, not the blood of an animal, but his own eternal, perfect, and human blood so that he could atone for human sin and cleanse us on the inside. Blaise Pascal has a quote. He said, There is only two kinds of people in the world. The righteous, who understand themselves to be sinners, and the sinners who believe themselves to be righteous. Only two kinds of people in the world. People who are truly righteous, who know that they're sinners, or people who are blind and deceived, who think that they're righteous, and yet they truly are. Christ came so that we might not have to fool ourselves anymore. He came so that our conscience could be purified from dead works to serve the living God. You might ask, well, what is a dead work? A dead work is anything you do with your hands or in your heart and in your head that seeks to lift yourself up, make you right before God, or make you look good before men that is not done with a pure heart. That was Israel's deep and grievous problem, and that is still a problem that the church struggles with today. We are all guilty of our dead works Mixing in a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of pride with the good things we do for God. And, and if we are honest with ourselves, if we're listening to our conscience, we know that we are guilty of that. And we need to be purified because our consciences have been stained. The good news is that Christ's perfect redemption, the fact that he was able to enter into the holy place, he's able to take our dead works and reverse them with his perfect work on the cross. And because he offered the only pure work that has ever been offered, the only one with a perfectly pure heart, he's able to take all of our dead works, and he's able to wash them clean, wash our consciences clean, and prepare us for the true and right service of God. How's your conscience doing this morning? When's the last time you prayed and asked, God, Please show me the sin that I'm overlooking. God, give me a sensitive conscience to everything that I do that breaks your law. God, show me my dead works, all the things that I'm doing that I'm not even thinking about that bring honor and glory not to you but to myself. This morning, you can have, saints, you can have a pure conscience. And you can be set free from your dead works to serve the living God because Christ's blood alone can purify you. And even better than that, not only does he want to wash you off and make you a pure vessel, but he wants to redeem you as well. Now, redemption, as we'll see in our second point here, it is a commercial term. So Christ doesn't just wash us off off and leave us in our spiritual slavery, 
but he redeems us and purifies us and he buys us back into his presence so that we might do his will. Look with me at our second point. Christ's blood not only purifies our consciences, but it's a redeeming blood too. Read with me in verses 15 through 16. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So because the wages of sin are death, what we need is we need the perfect blood of Christ to redeem us. If we are examining ourselves underneath the old covenant, the reality is that we are sold into slavery, that we are sold into the power of sin, and we are stuck there in an infinite debt that we cannot buy ourselves out of. And so Christ says, I'm not coming here just to purify you, but to bring you out of that debt. Listen to the debt that the Hebrew congregation would have known that they were in, and yet were choosing to ignore. In Deuteronomy 28, 47, this was the consequence of the old covenant that they were trying to go back to. It says, this is the penalty, the covenant curse for breaking the old covenant. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity... Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. And so this congregation is wanting to go back to that, wanting to go back to a system by which if they just even once do not joyfully or gladly in their time of prosperity serve the Lord with a pure heart, the consequences is the iron yoke of slavery. And we just have to read the Old Testament to see time and time again, this happened first with Egypt, and obviously we see it with Babylon and Assyria, that foreign invaders came and did this very thing to the people of God. And so 2,000 years ago, this congregation of the Hebrews may not have been under the iron yoke. They would soon be to the Romans, but they were certainly under the iron yoke of slavery in an infinite debt that they could not work themselves out of, even though they thought they could. And so we need the blood of Christ, the perfect high priest, to redeem us, to enact that commercial transaction, to pay off the fine that we could never pay, to bring us out of that horrible slavery, and to bring us into our amazing position as God's sons and daughters, who are set to inherit all of his spiritual riches. We know that Israel is considered God's son. And yet Israel had become an illegitimate son. Israel had squandered his place in the will of God, in the will and what they were set to inherit. They were the prodigal son who rejected the Messiah. And they had got themselves into a spiritual slavery. Now, in, he, in Leviticus 17.11, we're told, that it's for the life of the creature that's in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so what they were forgetting was that it required the blood of the life of one better than they to bring them out, to atone for their sin. 
And by thinking that an animal could do that, what they were doing is they were setting themselves up to be no better than all the sacrificial system that had been in place before. They were setting themselves up to go through another cycle of slavery that Israel had already experienced. And Christ is saying, I have come to buy you out of that once and for all. Look at my blood. Look that it is a true redeeming blood. Do not go back to that old system. The blood was there for a good reason. It was a visceral reminder of the commercial power and cost of their sin. When you had to take your prized bull that you had raised in your home and you had to bring it to the temple and you had to see it slaughtered and sacrificed, you were not only aware of how much money that that bull could have could have acquired for you elsewhere, so you're aware of the cost of it because it came out of your own pocketbook, but when you saw the blood spilled, you were reminded of both the justice of God, thankful that, that, that your sin was put on this animal rather than you, but you were also reminded of the mercy of God, that God was a God who would allow a substitute to take the penalty of your sin instead of you. And so the blood was a good ceremonial thing, but was of course no longer necessary because the cross of Christ was the final sacrifice once and for all to to cleanse them, not only on the outside, but most importantly, on the in. So too, our position and our worship must be redeemed because of our sin. Our sin, saints, is no better than the Hebrews, we, time and time again, transgress and break God's, God's laws. We break all of the commandments. And we, what we do is we put back in that barrier that prevents us from worshiping the one true living God in purity and in truth. We need redemption just as much as that Hebrew congregation needed redemption. If we try to offer ourselves to God, if we lift up our dead works We're only working ourselves into a deeper spiritual slavery in a delusion that thinks that we're right with God when really we're not. Amos 5.47 is a verse some of us maybe have been hearing lately, famously quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The context of that verse is that Israel was really good at offering all these bloody sacrifices, but they had neglected true justice, taking care of the oppressed in their midst, of the orphan, of the widow. And Amos is saying, God is sick of your noisy songs and he's sick of your blood sacrifices. What he requires is he requires a broken and contrite heart and he wants you to live out the true justice of God, to love the oppressed and to do and be the people God has called them to be. Saints, when we forget this fact that God requires true justice in our lives as well and true righteousness, what we do is we take the infinitely pure sacrifice of Christ and we say, ah, that's optional. Or I need it to to help me a little bit, but I don't need it thoroughly to make me an acceptable worshiper before God. On a human level, if we try to be like the Hebrews and we try to go back to our dead works, if we try to offer our own lives before God or do things thinking that we can appease the Lord without the blood of Christ, if we can redeem ourselves, then it's no better than if you were to total someone's car and then say, I'm really sorry about that. 
here's a gift certificate to a car wash. If you were to total someone's car and give them a gift certificate to a car wash, what that's doing is saying, here, you can clean the outside, but I'm not going to deal with the heart of the issue. As much of a slap in the face that sort of gift or offering would be, is the same level of grievousness that our lives are when we forget about the need for the redeeming blood of Christ that we need to totally cleanse us on the inside. Saints, we need a bloody cross. Unlike animals, Christ's blood was both human and divine, making redemption both possible and effective. An animal didn't have the same moral culpability a human did. Nor was an animal from the human race. And so those things were the training wheels. They were the reminders to tell them that they needed a better sacrifice, but they would not solve the problem. And so we should be eternally grateful that Christ came as a tr- truly as a man, he has the same, he's also descended from Adam. He has blood like us, and so that he can represent you. But also, he had the moral capacity that you do as a human as well. And you know what he did? He chose to perfectly always offer a pure heart before his father. As the perfect high priest, he always lived with perfect justice in his life always loving the oppressed, always loving those around him with perfect purity of motives. And because he was perfectly pure, and because he was fully human, his death, unlike that of an animal, it could release life to the world. Just as we're told in Leviticus that there's life in the blood, that blood and life are connected, that means that when Christ went to the cross on your behalf, when that crown of thorns was put on his head, when those nails were put in his hands, when that spear was put in his side and blood spilled out, although Satan and the enemies of God thought that they were harming Christ and taking life from him, really what they were doing was the opposite. In the beauty and wisdom of God, all they were doing is they were releasing life from Christ into the world to atone. The blood of Christ spilled out to redeem his people and to buy back those who are far from him, just like me and you. We need the blood of Christ to redeem us because even more than America, we have more than $24 trillion of debt. We have an infinite debt before our God because our sin is that much more grievous before an infinitely holy God. So we must turn from our dead works which include self-righteousness, thinking, I don't need the blood of Christ. Also, our sinful doubt, thinking that the blood of Christ is, isn't powerful enough to, to really cleanse me off, to really make me right before God, to really purify my, my guilty and bothered conscience. We need, to, we need to repent both of our self-righteousness and of our self-loathing and remind ourselves that although we are sinners, that Christ has come to make us clean. And he didn't just get us out of debt, but he says here that he died in order to give us the inheritance that we are due because we are called by God. Not because we earned it, because, but because before the foundation of the world, you have been known and you have been chosen by the Father and set to inherit the blessings and spiritual riches of Christ. 
He put you into his will. Now, where is your name written down? Well, I'll tell you. In Revelation 13, 8, we're told that for all those who do not take the mark of the beast, their name will be written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so if you're in Christ, then your name has already been written into the will of God. Look with me here at verse 16. It says, Where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it uh, is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Christ died not only to get you out of your sin, but to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are set to inherit the the, the family of God, to be in God's presence for all of eternity, which is everything. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, that those who are meek, those who have been, have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, will even inherit the earth as well. So if you think you need something in the earth, if you, if you want earthly things, Christ says, I'm here to give you everything in the presence of my Father. Throw in the earth as well. You'll be a ruler over that too. So he, he buys you back and he gives you everything, not because you could d- deserve it, because he is so good and his blood is so pure. So he purifies us. He positionally redeems us where he wants to put us. But not only that, in our third and final point, he prepares us for heaven as well. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he uses, the author uses the lesser to greater argument again. And he says that, even more than the old covenant high priest who would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies to make God's people clean, to atone for their sins. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he was the better high priest who went not into a temple made with hands, but in a cosmic way. He entered into heaven and offered his life once and for all in the presence in the heavenly courtroom of God to atone for all of God's people's sins once and for all. We're told that the earthly things, all of the amazingly complex temple system, it wasn't arbitrarily invented by God to be a pointer to the future, but it's actually a copy of the heavenly things that already exist. And so because we're told that the heavenly things, the spiritual things, are what is true, everything that we even see now it is secondary. It is dependent upon heaven that God has already established. And so heaven isn't just some place that God will create one day. It has been the dwelling of God forever. And so heaven isn't a shadow. We are living in the shadows in a way. The ultimate substance, the ultimate reality is where God dwells in heaven. Even more than the high priest who had to enter into that physical holy place, Christ entered into the heavenlies so that he could, he could make, that, make and prepare that place for us one day when he comes again, 
but also now that our praises and our prayers might be able to enter into the heavenly places and be heard by God too. Our worship will be stained apart from Christ entering into the heavenly throne room and making that pure for us. If you look back, we're not going to exhaustively work through them, but if you look back at verses 18 through 22, it talked about how every single physical element of the old covenant had to be sprinkled with blood, both the tablets and also the vessels used in worship and also the tent itself and the high priest. Everything had to be sprinkled with blood. Every single aspect of the worship had to be purified because it had all been defiled by sinful human hands. Christ comes and he enters the heavenly place once and for all and he says, no more of this temporary sprinkling. I will do it once and for all in the place where I want my people to finally dwell with God. He did this in space and time. In verse 26, it says it happened at the end of the ages. And so for them, the end of the ages was the end of their Judaic aeon, that the, the, the period of the old covenant system was coming to an end. It was the end of that age in the start of a new covenant. And so it happened at Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, where you could even take a plane and visit today. But even more so than the physical location of the cross was the cosmic location, the heavenly place that when Christ died, he took upon cosmically the wrath of God. And what that death did is that death both reached forward to us sitting in this room today to atone for our sins, to redeem us, to purify us, but it also reached backwards in the fullness of time to atone for all of the old covenant uh, true believers' sins by faith too. And so you might ask, well, how is a guy like Moses or Aaron or, or someone like Joshua, how were they saved Was it through the blood of bulls and goats? No. They were part of the old covenant system, that is sure, but they were cleansed on the inside too, and we can call them brothers and and the sisters as well in Christ, because they were saved by virtue of the future cross. That because Christ entered the heavenlies, he reached forward to us and backward to them in it, in his Christ, in his, his perfect blood, applied to all saints of all time. So that Abraham's faith is the same faith as us, although we have greater revelation than Abraham. This was a once and for all sacrifice that was needed so that this sacrifice didn't have to be continually repeated before the foundation of the world. This single sacrifice prepares us for the single judgment to come. Because if you don't have a single, final, once and for all sacrifice, then you'll never know if you're truly ready, will you? I sadly talked in in college, I went to a Catholic university, and I talked to some some Catholic uh, guy that I met, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And I said, well, how do you know? How can you have peace knowing that if you die, you're going to heaven? And he said, I don't. Really what I hope to do is, I know I'm, I'm living it up right now in my 20s, but really what I hope to do is, hopefully on my deathbed, have my last rites, and there confess all my sin so that I'll be cleansed once and for all on my deathbed so that I can make sure that I'm going to heaven. And I said, well, how do you know you're not going to get in a car accident tomorrow? You can't guarantee yourself to be on some sort of deathbed situation. And he didn't really have an answer to that. Sadly, 
Catholicism has really imported this concept of old covenant worship, where you, you, the communion is a form of the atonement happening over and over again, where, where Christ's blood is freshly applied to his people. But if that's the case, then you can never have a perfect peace of the coming, coming judgment. You say, well, this week was great, but of course I'll sin this week and I'll have to do it again. And this isn't just, I'm not just here to pick on Catholicism. This is every system of religion apart from Christianity is a works-based system. And like we've talked about time and time again, even if you don't slap a religious label on it, even if your religion is your work or your money or your sport, every system is religious in nature and you never know how you'll stand up to that final judgment. But because Christ offered a single and sufficient sacrifice we can be prepared for that single judgment day. Look at that day in verse 27 here. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So many people in this world think that they will have a second chance after they die, whether it's through purgatory, whether it's through reincarnation. Many people today are living like they have forever or they'll have a second chance And verse 27 in Hebrews 9 is a sobering wake-up call to us all. That after we die, then comes the judgment. The language implies that it will be immediate. It won't be that final judgment that Christ brings when he comes again in glory. But your position, whether you'll be in heaven or hell, will be doled out immediately after your death. You'll know where you end up right when you die. You'll either be in paradise like the thief on the cross, or you'll be like the other thief on the cross who didn't repent, and you'll, you'll wake up in hell a most horrible and horrifying prospect. That doesn't need to be the end for any of us. That doesn't need to be the end for any of your family or your friends or coworkers. You don't have to dread the final judgment because there has been a blood that is a heavenly blood, a blood that can prepare you not only for, uh, for a clean and pure conscience today, but for a heavenly prospect tomorrow. If we indeed have turned from our self-righteousness and dead works, if we've turned away from all of our sin that we've broken God's law with, and if we've accepted that the vicarious atonement of another, his blood was spilled out for me, and his work on the cross and his resurrection and entering into the heavenly places is the only thing I need for salvation, then you can look forward to this judgment day Not as a day in court, but with the eager excitement of a wedding day. What do you want to look forward to? Do you want to look forward to a future court date when your entire record's going to be pulled out? Or do you want to look forward to a glorious wedding day? I think any sane person would say the latter. The perfect blood of Christ is heavenly in nature and that enables us to eagerly await his second coming. Look with me at verse 28. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One way that you can tell if if you're bound for heaven, one way to tell that you're just not a nominal Christian, is to ask yourself, am I, in the deepest level of my heart, am I eagerly awaiting for Christ to come again? Because that's, those who he's going to come to save. If you are eagerly waiting Christ, whenever bad things happen in the world or bad things happen to you, when you get overwhelmed or sick of the brokenness 
when you're sick of the news headlines, when you are sick of hurting those around you and your own selfish actions, you don't need to spiral into a, a course of, of depression, but you can find fresh healing and forgiveness from the blood of Christ. And all of those things, all of the brokenness that you can be discouraged by can instead be a tool that makes you more eager for his second coming. It can be a tool that says, you know what, God, I'm sick of this world, and I'm even sick of my own sinful self. And what that does is that reminds us to say, no, wait, this is not all there is. There is a second coming that I can be even more eager for. And I'm afraid, church, that we're just not eager enough. I think we tip our hat to the second coming. We, we say we believe in the second coming. But I would not say we are eager for it as a child is eager for, for Christmas Day on the Christmas Eve. We are not eagerly awaiting, awaiting it as we should. And so has all of the chaos in the world, has all of this strange time we've been in, has it caused you to say, you know what, Lord, my hope is not in this world, but I am all the more eager for what you have in store, and I'm going to be filled with hope, and I'm going to spend my time in this, in this world not passively waiting, but actively waiting, because i am already been redeemed from dead works, I've been purified to serve the living God, it is my purpose here now to wait in action, reminding everyone else of the blood that's available for them to be cleaned to. I pray, saints, that you eagerly await the second coming of Christ like you would await a wedding day, knowing that there you will see, not by faith, but eye to eye, the one who loved you through and through and gave himself and his life for you. The one who, is, who willingly spilt his own blood, and when he did, he, he spilled out his life so that you might have life and have it eternally. Christian, I want you to know the perfect blood of Christ, to know that your high priest was the only one who could also be a sacrifice to make you perfectly clean through and through. And because you're perfectly clean through faith, you can now have a purified conscience a redeemed life, and a heavenly focus. Let's walk in that cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Let's no longer sing about the blood or talk about it as if it's a strange or alien concept. Let's remember that blood represents life, and instead of this commercial transaction of saying, oh, I'm always in someone's debt or I'm always putting people in my death, let us be satisfied in the blood of Christ that we can stand with a pure conscience before God in loving others and extending his gracious forgiveness to them as well. Will you do that with me, church? Let's be a blood-bought people who take his redemption to a sin-soaked world. Let's pray. Father, we are all too aware that we should have been the one upon the cross. That because of the penalty that we see in the old covenant, we deserve the iron yoke on our neck. We deserve hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty. The, all of the consequences that Israel felt and tasted firsthand, we deserve those too. And yet, because of your infinite riches and kindness and mercy, you took us as illegitimate children who wrote ourselves out of your will, and you put us back in, and you sent the death of your, the death of your son 
so that we could be written into the will, so that we could inherit all the spiritual blessings. I pray that we wouldn't be sinners who believe we're righteous, but I pray that we would be those who are righteous and know that we are sinners that have been bought back by the blood of a perfect high priest and savior. Bless the rest of our worship today. May it be pleasing to you. May we offer our own lives as living sacrifices, knowing that they are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.